Book fourteen, chapters twenty two through twenty eight of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo. Book fourteen. Chapter twenty two. But we, for our part, have no manner of doubt that to increase and multiply and replenish the earth in virtue of the blessing of God is a gift of marriage, as God instituted it from the beginning before man sinned, when he created them male and female, in other words, two sexes manifestly distinct. And it was this work of God on which his blessing was pronounced. For no sooner had Scripture said, Male and female created he them, than it immediately continues, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Increase, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, etc. And though all these things may not unsuitably be interpreted in a spiritual sense, yet male and female cannot be understood of two things in one man, as if there were in him one thing which rules, another which is ruled, but it is quite clear that they were created male and female, with bodies of different sexes, for the very purpose of begetting offspring, and so increasing, multiplying, and replenishing the earth, and it is great folly to oppose so plain a fact. It was not of the spirit which commands, and the body which obeys, nor of the rational soul which rules, and the irrational desire which is ruled, nor of the contemplative virtue which is supreme, and the active which is subject, nor of the understanding of the mind and the sense of the body, but plainly of the matrimonial union, by which the sexes are mutually bound together, that our Lord, when asked whether it were lawful for any cause to put away one's wife, for on account of the hardness of the hearts of the Israelites Moses permitted a bill of divorcement to be given, answered and said, Have ye not read, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. It is certain, then, that from the first men were created, as we see and know them to be now, of two sexes, male and female, and that they are called one, either on account of the matrimonial union, or on account of the origin of the woman who was created from the side of the man. And it is by this original example which God himself instituted, that the apostle admonishes all husbands to love their own wives in particular. Chapter 23 but he who says that there should have been neither copulation nor generation but for sin, virtually says that man's sin was necessary to complete the number of the saints. For if these two, by not sinning, should have continued to live alone, because, as is supposed, they could not have begotten children had they not sinned, then certainly sin was necessary in order that there might be not only two, but many righteous men. And if this cannot be maintained without absurdity, we must rather believe that the number of the saints fit to complete this most blessed city would have been as great, though no one had sinned, as it is now that the grace of God gathers its citizens out of the multitude of sinners, so long as the children of this world generate and are generated. And therefore that marriage, worthy of the happiness of paradise, should have had desirable fruit without the shame of lust, had there been no sin. But how that could be, there is now no example to teach us. 
Nevertheless, it ought not to seem incredible that one member might serve the will without lust then, since so many serve it now. Do we now move our feet and hands when we will to do the things we would by means of these members? Do we meet with no resistance in them, but perceive that they are ready servants of the will, both in our own case and in that of others, and especially of artisans employed in mechanical operations, by which the weakness and clumsiness of nature become, through industrious exercise, wonderfully dexterous? And shall we not believe that like as all those members obediently serve the will, so also should the members have discharged the function of generation, though lust, the award of disobedience, had been a wanting? Did not Cicero, in discussing the difference of governments in his De Republica, adopt a simile from human nature, and say that we command our bodily members as children, they are so obedient, but that the vicious parts of the soul must be treated as slaves, and be coerced with a more stringent authority? And no doubt, in the order of nature, the soul is more excellent than the body, and yet the soul commands the body more easily than itself." Nevertheless this lust, of which we at present speak, is the more shameful on this account, because the soul is therein neither master of itself, so as not to lust at all, nor of the body, so as to keep the members under the control of the will. For if they were thus ruled, there should be no shame. But now the soul is ashamed that the body, which by nature is inferior and subject to it, should resist its authority." For in the resistance experienced by the soul and the other emotions there is less shame, because the resistance is from itself, and thus, when it is conquered by itself, itself is the conqueror, although the conquest is inordinate and vicious, because accomplished by those parts of the soul which ought to be subject to reason, yet, being accomplished by its own parts and energies, the conquest is, as I say, its own. For when the soul conquers itself to a due subordination, so that its unreasonable motions are controlled by reason, while it again is subject to God, this is a conquest virtuous and praiseworthy. Yet there is less shame when the soul is resisted by its own vicious parts, than when its will and order are resisted by the body, which is distinct from and inferior to it, and dependent on it for life itself." But so long as the will retains under its authority the other members, without which the members excited by lust to resist the will cannot accomplish what they seek, chastity is preserved and the delight of sin foregone. And certainly, had not culpable disobedience been visited with penal disobedience, the marriage of paradise should have been ignorant of this struggle and rebellion, this quarrel between will and lust, that the will may be satisfied and lust restrained, but those members, like all the rest, should have obeyed the will. The field of generation should have been sown by the organ created for this purpose, as the earth is sown by the hand. And whereas now, as we essay to investigate this subject more exactly, modesty hinders us, and compels us to ask pardon of chaste ears, there would have been no cause to do so, but we could have freely discoursed, and without fear of seeming obscene, upon all those points which occur to one who meditates on the subject. There would not have been even words which could be called obscene, but all that might be said of these members would have been as pure as what is said of the other parts of the body." 
Whoever, then, comes to the perusal of these pages with unchaste mind, let him blame his disposition, not his nature, let him brand the actings of his own impurity, not the words which necessity forces us to use, and for which every pure and pious reader or hearer will very readily pardon me, while I expose the folly of that scepticism which argues solely on the ground of its own experience, and has no faith in anything beyond." He who is not scandalized at the apostle's censure of the horrible wickedness of the women who changed the natural use into that which is against nature, will read all this without being shocked, especially as we are not, like Paul, citing and censuring a damnable uncleanness, but are explaining, so far as we can, human generation, while with Paul we avoid all obscenity of language. CHAPTER Twenty Four. The man, then, would have sown the seed, and the woman received it, as need required, the generative organs being moved by the will, not excited by lust. For we move at will not only those members which are furnished with joints of solid bone, as the hands, feet, and fingers, but we move also at will those which are composed of slack and soft nerves. We can put them in motion, or stretch them out, or bend and twist them, or contract and stiffen them, as we do with the muscles of the mouth and face. The lungs, which are the very tenderest of the viscera, except the brain, and are therefore carefully sheltered in the cavity of the chest, yet for all purposes of inhaling and exhaling the breath, and of uttering and modulating the voice, are obedient to the will, when we breathe, exhale, speak, shout, or sing, just as the bellows obey the smith or the organist. I will not press the fact that some animals have a natural power to move a single spot of the skin with which their whole body is covered, if they have felt on it anything they wish to drive off, a power so great that by the shivering tremor of the skin they can not only shake off flies that have settled on them, but even spears that have fixed in their flesh. Man, it is true, has not this power, but is this any reason for supposing that God could not give it to such creatures as he wished to possess it? and therefore man himself also might very well have enjoyed absolute power over his members, had he not forfeited it by his disobedience. For it was not difficult for God to form him so that what is now moved in his body only by lust should have been moved only at will. We know, too, that some men are differently constituted from others, and have some rare and remarkable faculty of doing with their body what other men can by no effort do, and indeed scarcely believe when they hear of others doing. There are persons who can move their ears either one at a time or both together. There are some who, without moving the head, can bring the hair down upon the forehead, and move the whole scalp backwards and forwards at pleasure. Some, by lightly pressing their stomach, bring up an incredible quantity and variety of things they have swallowed, and produce whatever they please quite whole as if out of a bag. Some so accurately mimic the voices of birds and beasts and other men, that unless they are seen the difference cannot be told. Some have such command of their bowels that they can break wind continuously at pleasure, so as to produce the effect of singing. I myself have known a man who was accustomed to sweat whenever he wished. It is well known that some weep when they please, and shed a flood of tears. But far more incredible is that which some of our brethren saw quite recently. 
there was a presbyter called Restitutus in the parish of the Calamensian church, who, as often as he pleased, and he was asked to do this by those who desired to witness so remarkable a phenomenon, on someone imitating the wailings of mourners, became so insensible, and lay in a state so like death, that not only had he no feeling when they pinched and pricked him, but even when fire was applied to him, and he was burned by it, he had no sense of pain except afterwards from the wound and that his body remained motionless not by reason of his self-command, but because he was insensible, was proved by the fact that he breathed no more than a dead man. And yet he said, that when any one spoke with more than ordinary distinctness, he heard the voice, but as if it were a long way off. Seeing, then, that even in this mortal and miserable life the body serves some men by many remarkable movements and moods beyond the ordinary course of nature, what reason is there for doubting that before man was involved by his sin in this weak and corruptible condition, his members might have served his will for the propagation of offspring without lust? Man has been given over to himself because he abandoned God, while he sought to be self-satisfying and disobeying God he could not obey even himself. Hence it is that he is involved in the obvious misery of being unable to live as he wishes. For if he lived as he wished, he would think himself blessed. But he could not be so if he lived wickedly. CHAPTER Twenty Five. However, if we look at this a little more closely, we see that no one lives as he wishes but the blessed, and that no one is blessed but the righteous. But even the righteous himself does not live as he wishes until he has arrived where he cannot die, be deceived or injured, and until he is assured that this shall be his eternal condition. For this nature demands, and nature is not fully and perfectly blessed till it attains what it seeks. But what man is at present able to live as he wishes when it is not in his power so much as to live? He wishes to live, he is compelled to die. How, then, does he live as he wishes who does not live as long as he wishes? Or if he wishes to die, how can he live as he wishes, since he does not wish even to live? Or if he wishes to die not because he dislikes life, but that after death he may live better, still he is not yet living as he wishes, but only has the prospect of so living, when through death he reaches that which he wishes. But admit that he lives as he wishes, because he has done violence to himself, and forced himself not to wish what he cannot obtain, and to wish only what he can, as Terence has it, since you cannot do what you will, will what you can, is he therefore blessed because he is patiently wretched? For a blessed life is possessed only by the man who loves it. If it is loved and possessed, it must necessarily be more ardently loved than all besides, for whatever else is loved must be loved for the sake of the blessed life. And if it is loved as it deserves to be, and the man is not blessed who does not love the blessed life as it deserves, then he who so loves it cannot but wish it to be eternal. Therefore it shall then only be blessed when it is eternal. CHAPTER Twenty Six. In paradise, then, man lived as he desired so long as he desired what God had commanded. He lived in the enjoyment of God, and was good by God's goodness. He lived without any want, and had it in his power so to live eternally. He had food that he might not hunger, drink that he might not thirst, the tree of life that old age might not waste him. There was in his body no corruption, nor seed of corruption, which could produce in him any unpleasant sensation. He feared no inward disease, no outward accident. Soundest health blessed his body, absolute tranquillity his soul. 
As in Paradise there was no excessive heat or cold, so its inhabitants were exempt from the vicissitudes of fear and desire. No sadness of any kind was there, nor any foolish joy. True gladness ceaselessly flowed from the presence of God, who was loved out of a pure heart, and a good conscience, and faith unfeigned. The honest love of husband and wife made a sure harmony between them. Body and spirit worked harmoniously together, and the commandment was kept without labor. No languor made their leisure wearisome, no sleepiness interrupted their desire to labor. In tanta facilitate rerum et felicitate hominum, absit ut suspicemur, non potuisse prolem sere sine libidinis morbo, sed eo voluntatis nutu moverentur illa membra quocetera, et sine ardoris illecebroso stimulo cum tranquillitate animi, et corporis nulla corruptione integritatis infunderetur gremio maritus uxoris. Neque enim quia experientia probari non potest, idio credendum non est, quando ilas corporis partes non ageret turbidus calor, sed spontanea potestas sicur opus eset adhiberet. Ita tunc potuisse utero coniugis, salva integritati feminei genitalis, virile semen imiti, sicut nunc potest eadem integritate salva, ex utero virginis fluxus menstrui cruoris emiti. Eadem quipe via posset illud inici, qua hoc potest eici. Ut enim ad pariendum non doloris gemitus, sed maturitatis impulsus feminea viscera relaxaret, sic ad fetandum et concipiendum non libidinis appetitus, sed voluntarius usus naturam utramque conjungeret. We speak of things which are now shameful, and although we try, as well as we are able, to conceive them as they were before they became shameful, yet necessity compels us rather to limit our discussion to the bounds set by modesty than to extend it as our moderate faculty of discourse might suggest. For since that which I have been speaking of was not experienced even by those who might have experienced it, I mean our first parents, for sin and its merited banishment from paradise anticipated this passionless generation on their part. Heart, when sexual intercourse is spoken of now, it suggests to men's thoughts not such a placid obedience to the will as is conceivable in our first parents, but such violent acting of lust as they themselves have experienced. And therefore modesty shuts my mouth, although my mind conceives the matter clearly. But Almighty God, the supreme and supremely good Creator of all natures, who aids and rewards good wills, while he abandons and condemns the bad, and rules both, was not destitute of a plan by which he might people his city with the fixed number of citizens which his wisdom had foreordained even out of the condemned human race, discriminating them not now by merits, since the whole mass was condemned as if in a vitiated root, but by grace, and showing not only in the case of the redeemed, but all also in those who were not delivered, how much grace he has bestowed upon them. For every one acknowledges that he has been rescued from evil, not by deserved but by gratuitous goodness, when he is singled out from the company of those with whom he might justly have borne a common punishment, and is allowed to go scatheless. Why then should God not have created those whom he foresaw would sin, since he was able to show in and by them both what their guilt merited, and what his grace bestowed, and since, under his creating and disposing hand, even the perverse disorder of the wicked could not pervert the right order of things? 
Chapter 27 The sins of men and angels do nothing to impede the great works of the Lord which accomplish his will. For he who by his providence and omnipotence distributes to every one his own portion is able to make good use not only of the good, but also of the wicked. And thus making a good use of the wicked angel, who in punishment of his first wicked volition was doomed to an obduracy that prevents him now from willing any good, why should not God have permitted him to tempt the first man, who had been created upright, that is to say, with a good will? For he had been so constituted that if he looked to God for help, man's goodness should defeat the angel's wickedness. But if, by proud self-pleasing, he abandoned God, his creator and sustainer, he should be conquered." If his will remained upright, through leaning on God's help, he should be rewarded. If it became wicked by forsaking God, he should be punished. But even this trusting in God's help could not itself be accomplished without God's help, although man had it in his own power to relinquish the benefits of divine grace by pleasing himself. For as it is not in our power to live in this world without sustaining ourselves by food, while it is in our power to refuse this nourishment and cease to live, as those do who kill themselves, so it was not in man's power, even in paradise, to live as he ought without God's help, but it was in his power to live wickedly, though thus he should cut short his happiness, and incur very just punishment. Since then God was not ignorant that man would fall, why should he not have suffered him to be tempted by an angel who hated and envied him? It was not indeed that he was unaware that he should be conquered, but because he foresaw that by the man's seed, aided by divine grace, this same devil himself should be conquered, to the greater glory of the saints. All was brought about in such a manner that neither did any future event escape God's foreknowledge, nor did his foreknowledge compel any one to sin, and so as to demonstrate in the experience of the intelligent creation, human and angelic, how great a difference there is between the private presumption of the creature and the Creator's protection. For who will dare to believe or say that it was not in God's power to prevent both angels and men from sinning? But God preferred to leave this in their power, and thus to show both what evil could be wrought by their pride, and what good by his grace. Chapter 28 Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory, the other says to its God, Thou art my glory in the lifter up of mine head. In the one the princes and the nations it subdues are ruled by the love of ruling, in the other the princes and the subjects serve one another in love, the latter obeying while the former take thought for all. The one delights in its own strength, represented in the persons of its rulers. The other says to its God, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. And therefore the wise men of the one city, living according to man, have sought for profit to their own bodies or souls, or both. And those who have known God glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise, that is, glorying in their own wisdom and being possessed by pride, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. 
for they were either leaders or followers of the people and adoring images, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed for ever. But in the other city there is no human wisdom, but only godliness, which offers due worship to the true God, and looks for its reward in the society of the saints, of holy angels as well as holy men, that God may be all in all. End of Book 14, Chapters 22-28 through 28. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org